If you remain standing, we're going to come to the next passage in the book of John. We're in John chapter 14, and today Jesus is going to answer this question for us. How do we measure our love for Jesus? How do we measure our love for Jesus? That's going to be in John chapter 14, verses 15 to the end of the chapter. So it's on the screens here, or if you turn there, you can do so now. Hear the word of the Lord for us this morning. This is Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my, command, my, my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you this before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is God's word. You may sit down and let us pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word. Father in heaven, we ask by the power of your spirit now that you would reveal yourself to us. You would help us to know the power we have to obey. We ask that you would do this according to your good pleasure in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed, but the concept of Christianity that many, if not most, in our world have in their minds is something like that of a big spiritual to-do list. It's kind of like, if I do enough, whatever that predetermined thing is in my mind, go to church, check. If I read my Bible, check. If I'm generally kind to others, check. 
then I can have a good day, be full of peace and happiness. But on the flip side, with this faulty level of thinking, if I don't do some of those things, my day is ruined. It's a bad day. And what this does, it creates a concept of Christianity that Jesus never intended. This yo-yo experience, up and down, up and down, and it's all based upon our performance. Well, in today's passage, Jesus will show us that this is the wrong approach to Christianity, to following him. We don't need to live our Christian lives in this type of yo-yo state, constantly up and down every day. In these verses, Jesus will show us where the motivation lies and the power lies to obey him. And that motivation and power comes from him. Well, our text today is in the midst of what some have called the farewell discourse. This is a long farewell. It's chapter 13 all the way to chapter 17. It's a long farewell for the disciples. And we're right in the middle of this. And Jesus, as you remember, is in the last supper with his disciples. He's just told them some kind of like shocking news. One, that he's going away from them and they can't follow. He's told them that Judas, one of their own, is going to de- uh, deny him and uh, really betray him. He, they, he's told them that Peter, their follower, is going to deny him three times. And so they're troubled, and the Lord knows that. So as their loving shepherd, he is preparing them for what is to come just in the very next hours as he leaves the earth. And as Jesus talks with his disciples, we have a main theme in this text that emerges from this, this passage, and it's this. Our love for Jesus is shown by our obedience. Our love for Jesus is shown by our obedience, which is empowered by God himself. Let me say that again. Our love for Jesus is shown by our obedience, which is empowered by God himself. And this theme of the passage is found in two sections of our text. These two truths are found. First, our obedience to Jesus reveals our love for Jesus. That's in verses 15 to 24 of our passage. And then second, Jesus gives us everything necessary to obey. So let's first think about that that truth, that first truth, that our obedience to Jesus reveals our love for Jesus. So I asked earlier at the, at the beginning before I read the passage, how do you know if you love Jesus? Well, Jesus breaks it down very simply. He says, look at your life and see if you are obeying his commandments. In case you don't believe me, if you're not convinced, Jesus says the same thing three times in slightly different ways here in the first half of our passage. You see it in verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps him, he it is who loves me. And then in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so the million dollar question is this, well, what does it mean to keep Jesus' commands? What does it mean? Well, contextually, on one hand, the most recent command that Jesus has given came at the beginning of chapter 14. He says, believe in God believe also in me. And so surely, no matter what it means to keep Jesus' commands, it means, it includes, believing in him. 
And just before that command, at the end of chapter 13, Jesus gave a new commandment, he said, that you love one another. And not just love one another like you would conceive of it. He's saying to his disciples that you love one another as I have loved you. So this means that those who love Jesus, who keep his commands, will be characterized by belief in him and by Christ-like sacrificial love for one another. But obeying his commands is surely not limited to those two things. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel just before he ascended to the Father. He said that the heart of making disciples involves teaching them all that Jesus commanded. So just being a disciple, being a disciple of Jesus means learning to obey all that Jesus has commanded. So with this small sampling of verses, and we could go to so many others, we can conclude that keeping Jesus's commands is something that only believers can do. And it's something that we grow in throughout our lives as we grow in spiritual maturity. Keeping his commands reflects a heart desire and a commitment to put into practice everything that Jesus has said and taught in his word, in God's holy word. It means that the trajectory of your life, if you are wanting to keep his commands, is one of obeying your master. This, Jesus says, is how you know whether or not you love him. It's not about perfection. It's not what he's talking about or that you're not going to struggle with sin. Every single one of us will struggle with sin while we're still here on earth. It's whether you are as a way of life following and obeying your Savior. It's not perfection, but it is a commitment and a trajectory towards obedience. And with that in mind, I, I just want us to take just a quick pop quiz or assessment, really assessment of your life. As you think about your life as a general pattern, if you just think about, just think about the last few months, are you obeying Jesus' teaching or at least seeking to obey his teaching? If so, you should be encouraged. Maybe you're just really humble and you're like, I don't know. Uh, that's probably encouraging. It's probably, you're probably on the right track. You could ask your spouse or a good friend, are you seeking to do this? Be encouraged if you're doing that and give praise to God because Jesus says that is what's true of those who love him, seeking to obey and obeying his commands. But if this is not you, if you take an assessment of your life over the last few months and you think, no, I've, I've not very, I'm not even trying to obey. I don't even desire to obey. You should be very concerned. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 6, 46. He says, why did you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? See, because your love for Jesus is not shown primarily just with your words, but with your actions, by your obedience to him. Even as I say that, we, we have to be very careful here. Because if we just abstract or extract those verses about obeying Jesus' commands, those three things that I read, and rip them out of their context, we might conclude, along with countless others in this world, that following Jesus is all about following rules. It's all about obedience. And that would be incorrect. 
to avoid this kind of thinking and this trap, we must not forget that our love for Jesus is not something that we have manufactured on our own, nor can we manufacture this on our own. That's because our love for Jesus is a response. It's a response to his great love for us. You see, we only love Jesus because he first loved us. John himself affirms this in his first epistle, which is at the end of the Bible. He says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we must remember that our love for Jesus does not come out of thin air. We don't just try to strive really hard and get a love for Jesus, but it comes from God's initiative in our lives. And it, and it was poured out into our hearts, God's love, when we first believed in Jesus and surrendered our lives to him. It's really important that we get this order right. We can't get this in the opposite order. We must not forget that his love for us comes before our love for him or any of our response of obedience to him on our part. Obedience is just a helpful measure of our love for Jesus. Jesus is saying that obedience will be the inevitable flow or outflow of believing in him, of a life that has trusted in him by grace through faith. This all sounds really simple, these commands. Well, if you love Jesus, you'll obey him. Period. We could go home. We're good for the day. And yet for any of us who have been following Jesus for any length of time, we know that this is much easier said than done. We know the struggle that comes with trying to follow Jesus. We have felt the pull of the world and the flesh and the devil. We know the selfishness within and that it's not quite so easy. So where does this power to obey come from? Well, to understand this, we must examine the text to find what comes in between all these declarations of Jesus. If you love me, you'll obey. If you love me, you'll obey. If you love me, you'll obey. What comes between that? Because what comes between will give us insight into how we actually can obey and how we get the power to obey. So first, in verse 16, Jesus gives us an indication of where this help comes from when he says this. Verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You see, up to this point with the disciples, Jesus was the primary helper for them. He taught them God's words, he showed them God's ways. And he was their teacher and their master. But he's saying that he's going away and they are terrified. What's going to happen? Our helper is leaving. He is promising another helper. Could be translated another advocate, another counselor when he leaves. It's the spirit of truth. Who is the spirit of truth? It's identified just a few verses later in verse 26. This is the Holy Spirit. He promises to send the Holy Spirit to all those who believe. Once he departs, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And to those of us who have believed in Jesus, we all have received the Spirit. So who is this Spirit? 
that we have within us. It's good to remember this as we're seeking to obey Jesus. Well, the testimony of God's Word tells us that the Holy Spirit within us is fully God. Remember back in uh, Acts chapter 5, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. When they lied to the Holy Spirit, Peter says, you're not lying, you're lying to God when you're lying to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is fully God with all the characteristics of God. He's not an impersonal force. He's not kind of just like whatever you have in your mind that may be less than God. He is fully God. We learn in Ephesians 1 that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our eternal inheritance that's ours when we trust in Christ. That's the one dwelling within you. The Apostle Paul indicates in his letter to Ephesians that the Spirit is uh, not a force, not a power, but a person, evidenced by the fact that he can be grieved when we sin. He says in Galatians that when we live according to the Spirit, we will not satisfy the desires of our sinful nature. We won't sin in those same ways when we're living according to the Spirit. We'll get to this in a moment, but verse 26 of our passage says that the Holy Spirit reminds us of what Jesus has said and done. He writes the, the law of God within our hearts, and he's given us his word. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts for ministry according to his will. And then Galatians 5 says that the Holy Spirit's fruit is obvious when it comes out of us. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of these things. It's like many facets of a diamond. This is what it means to have the Spirit within you and his fruit coming out of you. Friends, the point is, is that when you believe in Jesus, you receive the same Holy Spirit who came in power to the early church. It is he who gives us the power to uh, obey and the desire to obey Jesus. But Jesus says that the world can't receive this spirit or accept him because it's outside of their realm of experience. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but if you're talking to an unbeliever about the presence of the Holy Spirit within you, you may sound a little bit crazy to someone who doesn't know what you're talking about. But it's not crazy to those of us who know and love Jesus. That's because we do experience his presence within us. He convicts us of sin. He reminds us of God's word in appropriate times. We see him producing change in our life. We know that he is in us because he's changing us to be like Christ. So to help us obey him, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit who is God himself. And if that were not enough, he also promises that he will come to his disciples himself. Listen to verse 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Remember how troubled the disciples were that Jesus was going away. Jesus here comforts them, telling them that he's not abandoning them. He's not leaving them as orphans. He's not the teacher going away. That's never coming back. Far from it. 
He's just said he's going to ask the Father and he will send the Spirit to them to dwell with them. Now he says, and I'm coming to you as well. The question is, when? When would Jesus come back for them? Well, it seems as though Jesus is purposely being ambiguous here. And he's probably referring to multiple fulfillments of his coming. Some which would come really soon and some would take a couple millennia to happen. In the short term, this would be fulfilled in his initial coming right after his resurrection. Scripture accounts tell us that Jesus, after he was raised, appeared in the flesh to more than 500 believers. Not to anyone in the world. They didn't see him, but these believers saw him in the flesh. He says, because I live, you also will live. When those believers, those 500 believers, saw Jesus alive, they knew that the promises of Jesus were true that as he was living, they also would live as they believe in him. So it's fulfilled then. But Jesus could have also been referring to Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on those early believers in Jerusalem. In that case, Jesus came to them not in bodily form, but through the Spirit. And while the world could not see him, believers saw him through eyes of faith, through the working of the Spirit. And it was glorious. And on that day, Jesus says, everything would come together for them. They would know the relationship between God the Father and Jesus, and they would know Jesus' presence with them. They, they had some sense of that in the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But Jesus also is likely referring to his second coming at the end of the age, when he will come again and take all of us who know him home. Because he lives On that day, we will also live. We will live forever. On that day, we will see the amazing reality of what it means to be in Christ. We will see with sight, not just with with physical sight, not just spiritual sight. The point is, is that Jesus was not leaving his disciples alone, even though he was about to depart from the world. And although they were afraid it was even better for them that he would depart. And today, he has not left us alone either as we seek to obey him. He sends the Holy Spirit and he himself comes to us. Well, as we move on here in the passage, we observe additional help that we receive to obey Jesus. So we we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive the promise that Jesus will come back And now we have additional help here in verse 21. This is what Jesus says. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, we've heard this before, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Here we see the great security that we have when we love love Jesus and know him. Those who love Jesus, he says, are loved by God the Father and loved by God the Son. Think about that for a minute. When you love Jesus, God's word says that God the Father loves you. Jesus loves you. We need to dwell upon that afresh. Maybe you have forgotten that when you believed in Jesus a long time ago. And maybe you need that reminder today that God the Father loves you. God the Son, Jesus, He loves you. 
We know in, uh, through life circumstances, when, when we are loved by somebody in a sacrificial way, when someone accepts us completely, it's not difficult to love and obey that person. Our obedience to Jesus is a response to this kind of love. Well, apparently one of Jesus' disciples didn't yet understand what Jesus was saying. It's normal. They often didn't understand. Listen to verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, that's important. Iscariot's going to betray him. Said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Well, in his answer, Jesus shows us that his offer is open, not just to the disciples, but to anyone who believes in him. Listen to verse 23. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, anyone, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. I wonder if you caught that. Those were monumental words. (laughs) from God's word. For the one who loves Jesus and obeys him, he or she will be loved by God the Father, loved by Jesus. They will both make their home, or it could be translated dwelling within that person. So in this passage thus far, remembering the Holy Spirit that was promised in verse 16, we have the promise of the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all taking residence in those who love Jesus. So when you believe in Jesus, God himself comes to dwell with you. What greater promise is that? What greater help is than, than that could there be? God himself dwells within you to help you obey all of Jesus' commands, to transform you. Well, this is all in stark contrast to those who don't love Jesus. They have no such power. Listen to verse 24, what Jesus says. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Here we see that those who do not know Jesus do not obey him. And quite frankly, nor can they. Because to obey Jesus, it requires a supernatural help a new heart, a new, new desires, new power. You cannot love Jesus and obey Jesus on your own. Sometimes church-going people are deceived into thinking that because God's word says that we're saved by grace, it just really doesn't matter how we live. We're just all good. It's all grace. We're all good. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Because when we're saved by grace, God himself, as we just talked about, comes to dwell within us. And he comes not, not to just like hang out there. He comes to change us. And he empowers us to obey him. So our confidence in salvation is surely not based on anything that we do. It's based on what Christ did for us. We can never forget that. Our confidence in our salvation is because of everything Christ has done But our confidence that we have been saved, that we're truly Christians, it grows over time as we see God changing our desires and our actions so that we increasingly obey Christ, so we increasingly look like Christ over time. 
and we seek to follow him. So if you're looking for confidence in the Christian life right now about your standing before God, ask yourself this question. Who do I love? Who do I love? And who or what do I obey? Who do I love and who or what do I obey? Because if you love Jesus, he says that you will obey his commands. Not perfectly, but as a general trajectory of your life. You will be seeking to obey his commands. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if you don't love Jesus, you won't seek to obey. And if you don't have any desire to obey, you don't love him. It's that simple. Friends, following Jesus requires believing in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, you receive, as we've just talked about, the Holy Spirit who empowers us and teaches us to obey. You cannot obey without the Spirit. And you can't have the Spirit without believing. That means that if you are here today and you are trying to obey Jesus and kind of be a good Christian without the Spirit, And without believing in Jesus, you are going to be a very frustrated person. And the solution for you is not to try harder, but it's to surrender. Surrender your life to Jesus. Confess your sins and turn your heart and life over to him. That leads us to the second truth about obeying Jesus from this passage which is really just a continuation of what we've been talking about. And it's this, Jesus has given us everything we need to obey him. See that in verses 25 to 31. You see, if you believe in Jesus right now, you have everything you need to obey him. You don't need to read a special book. I love Crossway, you know, involved with Crossway. You don't need a special Crossway book. You don't need to go to a conference. You don't need secret knowledge. In Jesus, you have everything you need to obey him. The keys to obedience and victorious Christian living are not hard to find. They're found in God's word, and they're all rooted in Jesus. They all come from him. When we believe in him, our life God's word says, is bound up in his. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And so we are given the benefits of his life. There's this great transfer. There's this great substitution that happens. His life for ours. And so here in these last verses, Jesus, right before leaving the earth, he articulated four gifts that he would give to his disciples back then. And he still gives us who believe in him, the same four gifts today. We'll go through these quickly. The first gift that he gives us is remembrance of his teaching through the Holy Spirit. So listen to verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's hard to articulate the difference between Jesus' disciples before they had the Holy Spirit and after they had the Holy Spirit. We've been seeing this throughout John. Like, disciples just aren't getting it. They're just not getting it. But remember what happened post-resurrection, after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. In Acts, we read they literally, the, the apostles, same apostles that don't get it, they literally turn the world 
upside down through the power of the Holy Spirit that was within them. And after Jesus rose from the dead and poured out his spirit, the disciples were taught all things by the Spirit. All that Jesus said was brought to mind. And thankfully for us, they wrote these things down. That's why we have a New Testament. I'm glad John didn't write his gospel before the Spirit. It would have been really fragmentary. <laughs> it's kind of like, okay, John, you don't fully get it. He, read his he wrote his gospel after receiving the Spirit, after the Spirit brought to mind all of these events of what Jesus had done and said. So as we look at God's word, we know that that's because of the Spirit. Scripture says, it's talking about Old Testament Scripture, but it's true of New Testament as well, that those who wrote down the words of Scripture were carried along and empowered by the Holy Spirit. God's word is breathed out by God. These are God's very words that he used, spoke through human authors, through, through their own minds, but he breathed out these words for us. And so this was fulfilled, this kind of promise was fulfilled specifically in the apostles who wrote down God's word. And now, the, today, the Holy Spirit writes God's word, as Jeremiah says, on our hearts and he speaks to us as we read God's inspired word, inspired and written down by the Holy Spirit, and as we hear it preached. And we have the same power dwelling within us that was dwelling within those disciples who turned the world upside down. So Jesus gives us remembrance of his word and teaching through the Spirit. That helps us to obey. The second gift Jesus gives us is his peace. Listen to verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Well, how does the world give peace? Jesus said, not as the world gives do I give. Well, the world gives peace by going to war to fight for peace. That's how there's peace in America because we have fought a lot of wars so that we might have peace. Right now in Israel, right now in Ukraine, these are wars that people are fighting so that on the, what we would say, the good side, so that there might be peace. That's how the world gives peace. It's through fighting, death. That's how we get peace in this world. Jesus says, I don't give as the world gives peace. My peace I give to you. Jesus offers a supernatural peace, a peace that transcends understanding and circumstances. You could be in the worst circumstances in the world. You could be in the middle of Russia or uh, Ukraine right now or the Gaza Strip right now, and you can have peace because Jesus gives not as the world gives. He can give you peace, supernatural peace, his peace in the midst of anything. Well, the third gift that Jesus gives us is his perspective. Listen to verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. We've already established at this point the disciples just don't really know what's going on. They don't fully understand what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit hasn't been given to them yet. They can only think about how difficult it will be to be without their master. That's all they're thinking about. 
But here, Jesus has given them an additional perspective, a higher perspective, a heavenly perspective. He's telling them that what is going to happen before it happens, so that when it happens, they might believe in him. And their perspective about Jesus going away was obviously off. He says that if they truly loved him, they would be glad that he was going away because he was going to the Father. They would be glad because they would realize without Jesus going away, they would not receive the Spirit. Jesus would be in one place at one time. But as he goes away, he sends the Spirit so that his Spirit might dwell within each one of them, wherever they are in the whole world. He says it's a good thing that he goes away because the Father is greater than Jesus. And that should raise all sorts of questions for you, <clears throat> that verse. What, am, what do you mean? How, how is that the case? How, how could God the Father be greater than God the Son? If, you, if we know our theology, if we believe in the Trinity, we know that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, there are three persons in one holy God. And they are all equal and they are all fully God. So how could God the uh, Father be greater than God the Son? How could that even be possible? Well, obviously we know it's not in value, it's not in worth. God the Father is not more God than God the Son. We know that is not the case. They are co-equal. But in this case, likely what Jesus is doing, he's referring to his incarnation. Jesus was, who was in the form of God, we, we learned in Philippians 2, became a servant. He emptied himself, not of his godness. He did not empty himself in that way, but he took the form of a servant. So on this earth, Jesus was always submissive to the Father. So the Father was greater in authority. He was the one who was, uh, Jesus was doing the Father's works. He was saying the Father's words. He always submitted to the Father. In that way, the Father was greater than Jesus. And so he says, it's good that I'm going to him because the plan of the Father is going to be fulfilled by the sending of his Spirit. So how often do we need a better perspective or a higher perspective in life? Here in this couple verses here, Jesus gives it to us. He shows us that his perspective is a much better one than ours, and that helps us to obey. The fourth gift Jesus gives us is his victory over Satan. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. Jesus knows that he's about to go to the cross through the plan that Satan has planted in Judas's mind. Now, Satan may think that he's going to destroy the Son of God, but oh, how wrong he was. <laughs> Here Jesus says that Satan has no claim on him. First of all, he's without sin, so Satan has no claim on him that way. He also has no authority over him. Scripture tells us that Jesus was delivered according to plan and foreknowledge of God. This was not Satan's plan. This was God's plan. That the Son of God might be crushed so that we could live. Unless we think that the world is a big cosmic battle between God and Satan. That's the popular narrative. Uh, it's God versus Satan. It's this big battle. It is a battle, but we need to remember that the two are not even on the same plane. They, they're not, it's not like two equals fighting each other. It's, uh, Satan was created by God, and he cannot act apart from God's sovereignty. 
So if you have that view in your mind, like God and Satan wrestling, yes, there is a war, there is a wrestle, but it's not, a, it's not an equal fight. It's not an equal fight. Jesus' victory over Satan, which happened on the cross, it becomes ours once we're in Christ. We are transferred from his kingdom to the kingdom of light, Jesus' kingdom of light. And that enables us to obey because when we're under Satan's kingdom, we cannot obey, as we talked about, in a way that pleases God. Well, the fifth gift that Jesus gives us is his obedience to the Father. Look at verse uh, 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. See, Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't first done himself in a much greater fashion. He always obeyed the Father, every time, in everything, even to the point of death on cross. Perfection, perfect obedience. And he says the way that the world knows that Jesus loves the Father is through his obedience to him. Just like how others will know our love for Jesus is for, through our obedience to him. The difference is, is that Jesus' obedience was perfect. And the glorious reality is that when we believe in Jesus, his perfect record of obedience becomes ours. I mean, that is, the, that is so glorious about the gospel, that when you believe in Jesus, God doesn't count your record, your faulty record, your attempts to obey and then backslide and then continue and your starts and stops. He doesn't count that against you. He counts Jesus' perfect record against you. Your identity is secure. There's no more yo-yo up and down. Am I in Christ? Am I not in Christ? If you've believed in Jesus, you have the perfect record of Jesus. And that should help us to obey. Because when we know that our standing is secure, it really frees us to act. It frees us that we know that it's not because of our performance that God is pleased with us, but because of Jesus's performance. Well, <clears throat> with all this help to obey Jesus, God dwelling within us, everything else I just mentioned that Jesus gives us, it begs the question, why can it still be so hard to obey? Why do I still struggle to obey? I've got God within me. I, I got a real problem then. <laughs> well, let me suggest a few reasons. Three of them. First, we forget. We forget what is ours in Christ. And if we're not careful, we can try to live our lives without God's help, without the resources that are within us to obey. And that's why passages like this can help us. We need to meditate and remember God's word. So we forget. Second, we disobey. That's what the Bible calls sin. When we have unrepentant sin dwelling within us, this power to obey Jesus seems unattainable. And it's like, well, what, what's the big deal if I do a few more sins? I'm already in the gutter to begin with. So if that's you today, you need to confess. Confess those unrepentant sins that are keeping you from obeying, that are blunting that 
desire to obey, that's making you sense that God is further from you than he really is. God is near to you if you know and love Jesus. He is not going to leave you. He'll never forsake you. But your sin will make you, it will make it seem like he has gone far away. So confess. Third, we neglect. We can neglect the many graces that God has given us to help us obey. We can not submit to the Spirit within us in His promptings and instead choose the other way, thinking, oh, I've got to do that. My, my desires are too strong. Not true. God's Word says that once you're in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have to obey its desires. That is a lie that you're believing if you think you have to do that sin again. You can obey. You have the power to obey. So we neglect the spirit within us. We also neglect potentially gathering each week with other believers in fellowship and praying for one another and meditating upon his word. These are all graces God gives us to help us obey. Friend, today, if you know and love Jesus, remember that you have everything you need to obey Jesus right now. Well, as we close, I want you to consider how you view the Christian life. How are you viewing the Christian life right now and following Jesus? Are you acting as if it doesn't matter how you live? God's grace is just going to cover it all? Well, if so, I, I hope this text is spoken to your situation because that's a faulty view. Are you stressed and filled with shame because everything you're not doing to follow Jesus, you always feel guilty? Well, that may mean that you've forgotten you're standing before God. You have forgotten where your identity lies and that you need a refresher on how to access the power that he's given you every single day. Or maybe you don't even want to obey. And if you're honest, you never really have. You might have been going to church. You may have been doing some Christian things. But if you're honest, you realize I've never wanted to obey Jesus. If that's the case, let today be the day that you surrender your life to him. You can't be with him forever by going to church. You can only be with him forever if you surrender your life. Say, I want you to be my savior and I want you to live your life through me. He gives us everything we need for life and for godliness. May we Go out of this place in the strength of the Spirit, knowing what we have, the full power to obey. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're grateful for the penetrating nature of your word, how it cuts to the core of who we are. And I know, Lord, in a text like this, you are doing mighty work in various people's hearts there may be some who realize I've never trusted in you Jesus I pray that that person would today turn and repent and follow you there may be others who are living in shame Lord help them to be strengthened by the truths that your spirit is with them that you are for them that you are patient with them you are helping them to become more like Christ and Lord, for those who may 
be genuine believers but really have misunderstood your grace and really don't care about obeying you, Lord, call them back to truth. Help them not to live a licentious, uh, debaucherous life. And Lord, we pray that in all of these things, as you're working in our hearts, that you would get the glory and that we would know the power of your spirit within us so that the world might know that we are yours. We pray that in Christ's name.